Welcome to Hilliard Studio Podcast, your resource for everything happening in the Hilliard Studio Method world. Need some new gear for the summer season? Because you're one of our loyal podcast listeners, we've got a deal for you. Take 20% off all apparel at HilliardStudioMethod.com by using the promo code PODCAST. That's 20% off all apparel at HilliardStudioMethod.com by using the promo code PODCAST. Thanks for listening. And now, here's your hosts, Liz Hilliard and Lee Canelli. All right. Hi, everybody. I'm Lee. And I'm Liz. And we are so excited because we have a very special guest on with us today. Mr. James Nestor is a journalist and the author of Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. James, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Thrilled to have you here. You've uh, sort of blown up, James, right? I mean, you're on the number, what are you, number 11 on the New York Times bestseller list right now? How does that feel? (laughs) Uh, pretty surreal because no, no one was expecting a book about breathing or or breath to, to, to do this, but, uh, it's, it's obviously wonderful too. I'm not going to complain about it. Well, can I just say that Lee, um, we were at the beach, uh, probably the first of June and she said, I brought this new book. It's called breath. And I went, wow breath. And I said, you read it, you give me the cliff notes. And the minute she started reading me the part about you plugging up your nose, I went, time out. I'm downloading this right now. So we have a million copies. We have every copy you can think of digitally. We listen to you audio. Anyway, um, yeah, it's been quite a ride. So tell us a little bit about how you got to writing breath. So my reaction was exactly your reaction. <laughs> so when, when I thought about writing a book about breathing, I was like, you got to be kidding me. You know, I told, told my friends about it. They said, oh, this is dude, what are you doing? So um, but but it wasn't until I really started getting into the subject. Uh, I, I had the idea years and years ago, but I didn't want to write a memoir. I'm a science journalist, mm-hmm. so I, I needed to write something that was going to apply to everybody and needed to have a very firm foundation in science. But it was really, you know, until I met freedivers, these people who can hold their breath for seven, eight, nine minutes at a time, uh, that I saw the potential of breathing, not just for diving, but for other applications on, on the terrestrial plan, you know, for health, for happiness, for longevity. Mm -hmm. And the more I dug into it, the more that little folder by my desk kept kept growing wider and wider and wider until I talked to my agent. I was like, I think there's a book in here. And she had the same reaction. She's like, no, <laughs> no, not writing a book about because there's you go on Amazon and there's, you know, there's hundreds of books about how best to breathe. And they usually have a tree on it or a cloud. And, uh, and I said, well, what if we, we didn't focus on the how to breathe? Cause that's the easy part. You can, you can learn that on any website, but the but the what and the why and the where and how this applies to us and, and how it developed in our in our culture and, and in medicine. And she thought, oh, that that could be more interesting. <laughs> we wrote the proposal and a, and a larger story emerged from that. It's well, just incredible. Yeah, that's that's what's fascinating to me. I, you know, I didn't understand how important it was, even though I have a workout. Hilliard Studio Method is based mm-hmm. on Pilates breath, which I want to mm-hmm. talk to in a minute. But I, my first question is, why has breath become so unimportant, understudied, undervalued in Western civilization while everybody else seemed to have a, a handle on it? I mean, what happened to the Western, what happened to the Europeans? <laughs> I, I think it's just, it's so obvious. And, you know, the medicine pres- being mm-hmm. prescribed here is air. And yeah. people are like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> air, air cannot change the physical structure of my body. It can't connect me to my nervous system. It can't connect me to control different organs, uh, you know, but, but it can. Mm-hmm. And, and once you start looking at the science of this, you start wondering, this is such a foundation to our health. And as I mentioned in the book, you know, you can have the most perfect vegan diet or paleo diet mm-hmm. or keto diet. Or workout. You can exercise mm-hmm. five hours a day, your stretch. If you're not breathing right, 
you're never, ever going to be healthy. And, and it, it seems so simple in some ways, but at the same time, it's been completely ignored in our culture and throughout a lot of medicine as well. Yeah. Talk to us about what has changed in the human species over time that has made us such bad breathers. So when you write a nonfiction book, you, you write a proposal first and mm-hmm. it's about 50 pages and you really lay out exactly how you're going to write the book. These are the leaders in the field. This is how the chapters are going to work. I'm going to start here. I'm going to end here. So I did that. And that's you get your contract from your publisher and they send you out for a couple of years to go write it. So I thought I had this world pretty well figured out. And then about six months in, I, I discovered that <laughs> our species has completely changed and our breathing has changed. So I had to throw out that six months of work on the proposal and start over again because this story was so much weirder and wilder than anything else I had stumbled across. And it's basically the, the cliff note version of this is that our faces and our mouths have so drastically changed, especially over the past 500 years, that so many of us aren't able to breathe properly. And this is one of the reasons we snore. It's one of the reasons we have sleep apnea. You know, a quarter of the population now has sleep apnea. Those numbers go up every year. Mm-hmm. It's tied to asthma. It's tied to periodontal disease. It's tied to even metabolic problems. So, yeah, right. um, and we treat each of these different diseases separately. You know, here's insulin for your diabetes and here's a bronchodilator for your asthma. But we're not looking at the core issue mm-hmm. and it's a core issue of breathing. And this is caused by this disevolution that's occurred in our mouths and faces. I love the story you told. Um, you talked about 300 years ago during the Industrial Revolution, we started eating softer food and our anatomy of our of our jaws and our teeth and our mouths changed not for the better like you said disevolution that was shocking to me because i i was always of the thought mm-hmm. you know the stronger we evolve but your your notion or no your your proven work is that we are evolving into a, a lesser form not as healthy a form of a human yeah. And if you, you know, this was something that shocked me too. You know, I never learned this in my biology classes or anthropology classes. It's just not, I don't think taught very much unless you mm-hmm. get into the real master's level classes. And then, then I found when, when I first heard that, I said, you have got to be kidding me. I know about Darwinism. I know about survival of the fittest. It's all we yeah. ever hear. And then you start looking at UC Berkeley and Princeton and Stanford and they're like, no, 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 this is not how evolution works. So <laughs> evolution Evolution means change and, right. and animals can change for better or, or the worse. And in the wild, you know, survival of the fittest plays a huge part in, in our evolution. But if you don't believe this, just go look around. Yes. <laughs> look, look what's happened to our species. <laughs> yes. How many people are, are myopic now that, that weren't before? Yeah. Our backs hurt. Our ankles hurt. We can't walk properly. We have metabolic. I mean, look at the laundry high blood list pressure, of dis- cancer. High, high blood pressure. Can't. I mean, we can yeah. go down a list of about 30 different diseases that are entirely man-made by, by our culture. So there is no advantage to having, you know, diabetes or cancer. Like there, there's zero and there's no advantage to having a mouth that's so small that your teeth can't grow in straight. And that's exactly what's happened to us. That mouth has become so small. 90% of us have crooked teeth and I'm, I'm raising my hand over here. <laughs> I because I had all We've all had braces. Have braces, extractions, yes. headgear, retainers. Yes, I do too. Um, the headgear, correct. All right. And to, to me, it's like when you're a teenager, this yeah. is just what you do. Right. Hey, mm-hmm. when you get near braces, there's nothing normal about this. <laughs> and it was fascinating <laughs> to me to go and look at ancient skulls mm-hmm. and to see they all had these perfect teeth. They never had wisdom teeth removed. There was no Invisalign or Smile Direct. <laughs> They had perfect teeth. And then you look at all the wild animals. 
perfect teeth. teeth. So wow. So this is this is bad news for for our culture, our, our society, <laughs> our species. But I I thought once you and this is why I spent time at the beginning of the book to really explain what happened because once mm-hmm. you identify that problem, then you can spend the rest of the majority of the book on okay we're messed up. Yep. Now let's now fix it. What 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 can we do to fix it? What can we do? You know a very common you know, solution would be, let's just go to Stanford, plug my nose for 10 days and be miserable. <laughs> we are, that's James, this is what, that's what you're in for now. I mean, I know everybody's going, so what is this about? The, uh, the main thing I think we got to set the premise is there is an answer and we can change the way our right. faces and our breathing and our health is our mortality rate can be changed by a simple what? Absolutely. And, you know, I knew that there was going to be so much apprehension about this subject because I think a lot of breathing has has really been co-opted by people who probably have the the best intentions, but aren't Mm -hmm. looking at the science of it too much. And my father-in-law is a pulmonologist, right? And mm -hmm. he is, he is a very conservative dude, medically speaking. Mm -hmm. And, and I say, he's going to tear me apart if I get this stuff wrong. (laughs) So, so uh, it was great to have him constantly steering me, you know, Um, and, and saying this, this is legit, this isn't legit and so on and so forth. So, you know, a lot of people think that the breathing also is tied to a placebo effect. They're like, oh, you just think you're feeling better. And placebo effects very powerful. It's complete garbage. This is a physiological response that is measurable. And if we can measure it, we can study it. And if we can study it, we can prove whether it's right or wrong. That's science. That's how it works. So I had heard from the chief of rhinology research, uh, Jayakar Nayak. Uh, he's, he's right down at Stanford and I'm in San Francisco and I have this amazing institution so close to my house. We had talked numerous times. He's a nose guy. He's like, the nose is so vital for health. No one's talking about this. No one studies it at the National Institutes of Health. And, I, and so he knew about the damage of mouth breathing. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty well known how it can mm-hmm. cause mm-hmm. some forms of snoring, sleep apnea, allergies, mm-hmm. asthma, anxiety, all that stuff. But nobody really knew how quickly it turned on. <laughs> and, and I asked him, I said, you're in the best position, maybe anyone in the world to study this. Why don't you get a study together? And he thought it would, in his words, he said that would be unethical knowing what he knew about it. So, so I, I removed that, that quandary from him and, and volunteered. I said, well, let's do a study. He, they had no money for this. So we had to, we you had to pay it for it. Yeah. We, we, which I think is, is bizarre that these institutions who have mm-hmm. hundreds of millions of dollars to study pills and, and mm-hmm. drugs don't mm-hmm. have a few thousand dollars to, to study a therapy and breathing that has been shown to be so powerful. That's a whole other subject. But don't you think that's into. just, yeah, there's no money in it, right? I mean, there's zero money. Yeah. Right. Right. Breathing zero. is free. Breathing is free. We can all just breathe through our noses and we're going to be okay. But we, you've got to tell me how that felt to plug your nose for 10 days. And I can't imagine agreeing to do it. <laughs> well, we didn't, I, I, I wanted to be clear. I didn't want this. I didn't want myself in this book at all. And and that's how the proposal was written without me in it at all. And, and I was very strict because I hate when you start hearing from the author too much. It's just, it always bugs me, but I realized no one else was really going to do this. Um, And I was curious enough. I wanted to do it. So I, I got someone else, one of the better breathers in the world, a breathing therapist in from Sweden who Mm -hmm. flew out here on his own dime because wow. he had been preaching the wonders of nasal breathing. And he's like, I, I got to walk the walk now and show all, all of the people he's working with the, the difference in these two channels. So, yeah, we plugged our nose with, with silicone, with tape over it. And uh, and it was awful. Uh, you, you know, uh, we, we knew it was going to be bad. Uh, we, we had a feeling because mm-hmm. the science is very solid. We just didn't know it was going to be that bad. Wow. And and to see, we were testing ourselves three times a day in my living room, which, which I'm downstairs in my house. We had about $10,000 worth of equipment here looking at blood pressure three times a day, CO2, nitric oxide, O2. Like we we took this very seriously and, and we found that within a single day, both of us went from not snoring at all 
we started snoring. A couple of days later, we mm. started snoring more. About three or four days later, I was snoring four hours throughout the night from snoring, you know, two minutes to zero minutes before the study. He showed the exact same changes. Um, wow. And then we started getting sleep apnea. We started recording ourselves. We had video. We had everything. And it, we would listen to these recordings of us breathing at night. <laughs> and the beginning, we were cracking up. We're saying, oh, my God, we're breathing. So and then it got really scary because... You're just listening to a body being choked Trying to death. Trying to die. <laughs> very slowly, you know, very, very slowly, because that's what sleep apnea does. It will just wear you down. And the fact that this is so closely connected by the channels through which we're breathing, I just thought was so interesting. And I, you know, it's hard. There had been some studies looking at increase during seasonal allergies, sleep apnea goes up, but um, very small studies. And I thought that this was important to get out into the world and make, make people, you know, conscious of what's going on here. So important. And so what you found out though, also was your, your blood pressure went sky high. Uh, mm -hmm. Your pulse, was that correct? Was really increased. And I mean, you felt like hell, right? Just 10 days. All, all of that stuff. Yeah, exactly right. With Within a few hours, my my blood pressure went up 20 points. Wow. Um, and it didn't didn't stay that way. You know, blood pressure fluctuates mm -hmm. in the morning, it's lower in the afternoon. So, but on average, I, I think on average, it was up about 10 to 12 um, and then peaking at like 15 to 17 points, which is my blood pressure is already a little high. So I was like, my, my God, this is so damaging. Heart rate variability, which is getting very popular, absolutely plummeted. Our scores were so poor just by breathing through the mouth. Um, you know, I can go on and on, athletic endurance, all that uh, just, just plummeted. And, you know, 10 days is a long time when you're, when yeah. you're feeling bad. <laughs> Why did you pick uh, 10 days? Why did you go so long? <laughs> we, we thought that that was, um, that was the proper amount of time. We thought that that would be the absolute limit that we, we, we would be able to stand this. And it, it turns out that, that after two days, we thought, Oh my God, what have we done? Wow, two days. We were just counting, we down, <laughs> counting, counting down the hours, you know, counting down the breaths. And it's sad to see, if you look at the studies done here in, in San Francisco, I'm ashamed to say it, University of California, San Francisco, where they did this with with monkeys. Um, oh. They did it for six months. I couldn't to two read that years. part, James. I had to oh, pass I, through I, that. I, you know what? I'm I'm glad you didn't. And I try to give people keep a warnings because it shows the massive damage that occurred in their mm. airways from doing this. And you look at these monkeys two years later, and they look just like so much of the population. Wow, you know? which mouth so. breathing. And right. What did you say? Head tilted posture yep. that <laughs> I loved what you were talking about back in the day with the posture being more of a J curve, you know, you know, yep. and now it's just, we're all leaned forward and chins jutted out. And yeah. These, you know, it's not hard to find. I, I look in the mirror and I see that sometimes. <laughs> so, so you just go, go and look around at how, how we're breathing the, the neck craned out. And we do that. They believe some of that is caused. Yeah. By habits, by looking at phones and computers all day, mm -hmm. but it's also imagine what happens when, when someone has passed out, what does a, a person who is administering CPR do? They lift the back of the neck and they curve the neck out to open the airways. And so many of us have have adopted this because we can't breathe if Mouth we're sitting breathers. up straight. Yeah. Wow. So it's, 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 it's no, no mystery. And I think once you see this, once you learn this, you can't unlearn it. You just start seeing it <laughs> everywhere. I know. Is, now I am. I bet. But you, Liz, have already oh. kind of worked on James's solution. You know, James, I am your slaps the bandaid on, on every night, every single, I, I know we're jumping ahead, but really and truly, I think what we're getting at is the, is a simple, there's a lot of, like you said, ways to breathe, but breathing through your nose is the key. And so I didn't realize that I sometimes breathe through my mouth at night. I had no idea, but I've been putting a Band-Aid, a big one actually, and you can actually talk through it. It's sort of like you said, you're using your surgical tape. And I, we were just sitting here waiting on you to come on a minute ago. And I looked at the screen and I said, my skin looks better, <laughs> you know, sleeping better. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that, that's not a, again, that isn't a placebo effect. This is stuff that, that almost anyone can measure. And, uh, and I certainly did over the last couple of years with a, I'd go to sleep with a pulse oximeter on. I, I would have an app called snore lab that would record my snoring. Um, and you, you can take your, your blood pressure before and after we had continuous glucose monitors. So when you're inhaling through through the nose, especially if, if you're doing this for a third of your life, you're getting about 20% more oxygen mm-hmm. with each inhale. Okay. And that makes an incredible difference. That means you can breathe less. You can put less wear and tear on your body to get more. And, and especially, you know, uh, a lot of us can be cognizant of our breathing throughout the day. And that's great. You know, mm-hmm. that's very important. But if every single night for mm-hmm. eight hours, your mouth is open and you're breathing through the through the mouth, which I've been doing for decades, which I thought was just normal. I'd go to sleep with a huge glass of water by my bed yeah. every yes. single night. And now I since I've been using this teeny piece of tape and, you know, people <laughs> have their different ways of doing it. And that's great. I, I prefer a little stamp size, postage stamp size piece of a very light tape just at the center of, of my lips. And now I don't breathe through my mouth anymore. And the, the point of this isn't to hermetically seal your mouth up. Right. No, no, no. <laughs> it's just to train that mouth to be closed so that you breathe through your nose, which is so important. Mm-hmm. So important. Historically, I'd like to point out the Native American cultures that Catlin studied that you referred to in your research, Liz, that was one of your favorite Mm -hmm. parts of the story of how important ancient civilizations used to, and not ancient, but well, uh, Native Americans. Yeah. That was such a cool study. Uh, James, my favorite tribe was, what were the name? The Mandan. The Mandans, the people that were really tall. They look like superhumans with white hair and blue eyes and perfect teeth. And they're all what about six feet tall. I'm like, I, I want to be like, part of that crowd. I like this culture. <laughs> yeah, and this is just one of the many weird pathways that I ended up <laughs> really roaming did. down. This is the last thing you think about writing <laughs> that you're going to be writing when you're writing a book about yeah, biological function. Is you're digging through old manuscripts from an explorer from the 1830s who went and visited 50 Native American tribes pre-contact. So this is before they got alcohol Mm -hmm. or tobacco or Mm -hmm. guns or any of that stuff when they had lived a way naturally that they had lived for thousands of years. And you can look at the skeletal record, straight teeth the whole way. They were considered to be probably the tallest people that ever roamed the earth from six to seven feet tall. The Mandans, that really tripped me out that yeah. there was this culture that had white and gray hair with blue eyes, you, you know, I mean, it's um, like from another planet. I want yeah, yeah, I know. And they had these bubble mud houses. Yeah. I said, you have to be kidding me, but this guy was, was legit, you yeah. know, and this is all very carefully documented. But what he found that all of, you know, they had slightly different customs. They ate different foods. They lived in slightly different ways. But one thing that they all shared including with indigenous cultures down in South America, was this understanding and appreciation appreciation that breath was a a medicine. So they never breathed through their mouths. And they would even, you know, they went so far as to have infants they put them on this board, which, you know, not, not recommended nowadays <laughs> read people, that. <laughs> not um, advising. to keep their mouths shut. So they were always breathing through their noses after they were done nursing. They would, the mothers would very gently close the infant's mouth so that they would habitually mouth breathe. And if you look at their facial structure here, I'm, I mean, such powerful, beautiful faces mm-hmm. that these people had, because we know if you're walking around, especially in youth with your mouth craned open, your face is going to develop something. It's so common. It's called adenoid face. Oh, yeah. Because when the adenoids get inflamed, mm-hmm. you can only breathe through your mouth. The nasal apertures get plugged. So you develop this very long, 
um, a narrow face. And, and you see this all over the place. And I, I think I was mouth breathing a lot through my youth, not not knowing better. Um, so so it affects us, you know, our biology. It affects us physically. It affects our teeth. And, uh, you know, such a simple practice. But again, so so ignored for for so long in our culture. Right. So where do we begin with the nasal breathing if, you know, it's common now for people to have deviated septums or stuffed up noses? What's a basic you can share? How do we begin this in a practical way? Yeah. So everyone's different, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm not a therapist and I'm not an ENT and I'm not a doctor. So I I can't prescribe a blanket cure or whatever for anyone. Um, You need to talk to someone who's qualified to do that. But one thing I did learn, I was picking up tips along the way, is that you can self-diagnose some of this stuff. So the the idea that I was just talking to a friend that, that went in, has had chronic sinusitis, she said, oh, my God, I have a deviated septum. I can't believe it. You know, she was so ashamed. <laughs> oh, I was I was like, you know, I hate to break this to you, but 75 <laughs> percent of the population has a septum that is clearly deviated to the naked eye. Wow. So, wow. I didn't know um, that. What they, what they've, and, and this is usually the selling point for surgery. People just right. rush people because they're like, you are deformed. Right. You have a deviated <laughs> septum. So what, well. what, what I've learned from is that, you know, certain people in that community, just like in any community are overzealous. What they know is surgery and that's what they go to. And surgery can be wonderful for people with, with severe problems. Surgery is an absolute life changer. But I also know that we can use so many of us can use our natural bodies to change our airways, to increase our the nasal apertures, to increase our ability to breathe in easy, easy breaths of air. And I know this from working with Ann Kearney down at Stanford. Mm-hmm. She's a doctor of speech language pathology. She was a mouth breather. So this is someone who teaches breathing to people. <laughs> um, she realized she was a mouth breather and she was slated for surgery. They were going to go in, drill out her turbinates and, mm-hmm. and make her breathe easier. And she thought about this a little more. She's like, wait a second. If I, the nose she knows is a use it or lose it organ. So ah. the less you use it, the more it's going to close mm-hmm. down. So mm-hmm. she went and dug through all the files at Stanford and found that people who had had laryngectomies, which is a hole drilled in the throat mm-hmm. because they had had cancer or some other problems. Within two months to two years, their noses were completely clogged up. So they didn't use their nose. So those tissues just went to protect the nose. So she started training herself to breathe through her nose. And she said it was so hard. Uh, She was older. um, She's like, my body is not isn't used to this. But she completely cured her snoring. Her, her nasal obstruction by breathing through the nose. And she did that with that. Sleep tape is, is helpful, but she also did it with just consciously breathing. And so what I've heard from her and so many other people is that, I don't want to say the vast majority, maybe I'll say the majority of us who have these problems with our nose, we can use our bodies to fix this stuff. Our bodies are so good at healing themselves if we really allow them to. Again, I want to be totally clear. This is, I'm not giving a prescription to someone who has extreme problems in their nose. You need surgery. So go get surgery. But for others like me, they they took a CAT scan of my head and NIAC, the the Mm -hmm. rhinology researcher looked at it and he's just like, dude, you are a mess. (laughs) He said, he said, you are a perfect candidate for surgery. That's what I said, no way. I said, yeah. I'm going to see what I can do elsewhere. And I took a CAT scan um, at that time. And I took one a year later and, and had massive improvements through my airways, just my by nasal breathing. breathing, just by breathing and a few other hacks. That's so, incredible. Uh, and it's measured with CAT scans. So people say, oh, it's placebo. Right. No, I've got the data and anyone can (laughs) see it, you know? So people that say I've got deviated septum or I can't breathe, I have to, you know, you can tape your mouth shut and you believe you can, you can heal your whatever ails you with just nose, nose breathing, right? I, 
I believe um, not not exactly. I don't want to go so far as to say that some people absolutely need surgical interventions mm-hmm. for sure. What I do strongly believe and what Jayakar Nayak believes, one of the leaders in this field at Stanford and what dozens of other ENTs and doctors have told me is you should not rush into surgery. Start with these other methods first. Mm-hmm. Use a neti pod on occasion. Nayak has used... Um, sinus wrenches rinses with a low dose steroid and found something i forget the numbers you know 25 out of 28 people no longer felt the need for surgery after that just by rinsing their sinuses out with a steroid so uh, i would start with these with these easy things these free things i would start with the sleep tape um i would start with a neti pot maybe talk to a doctor see if you can get that low dose steroid nyak has done tons of studies on this stuff and there's also other procedures that don't require you to drill out the bones in your nose mm-hmm. right um, <laughs> this this one uh balloon sinusplasty where mm. they put this little balloon in and just sort of open it a little more minimally invasive easy recovery. So um, the problem is, I don't want to sound too cynical here, is everything I just told you is pretty cheap and pretty yeah, easy. Right. It's easy. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, that's, and awesome. that's, that's not good for the, the economy, you, you no. know? Um, but so I don't want to get too simple. Yeah. yeah. It's good for people, but I don't want to get too cynical. But again, this is what I've heard from people who study this stuff every day. Start low, start easy, work yourself up. If after a month or two, you're still suffering, Talk about surgery. Okay. Um, what I feel like I'm, you know, what I know I'm reading in the book and hearing you say is the efficiency that we can create with breath and how it helps our body. And I think coming from our perspective, the workout that we do, we're trying to be really efficient in what we're doing with our muscles. Like you said, the nose, it's a muscle. The more you use it, the better it works, just like our body. So I want to talk a little bit about athletic performance, Mm -hmm. endurance, aerobic, anaerobic zones, and kind of how we might think about breath in our workout and change things. We use a Pilates breath, which is a deep inhale through the nose and an exhale through the mouth with a, with a contract, with a um, engagement of the transverse abdominus to connect the core. And I think that's very important, but I'm a little bit confused or not even not confused. Just have a question. Um, This whole diaphragm, raising the diaphragm, really moving the, the air around in the lungs. I, I believe we read that we only right now generally use about 10% 10% of our lungs. I feel like we, if we use more capacity of our lung power, oxygenate our bodies more uh, appropriately, that we will see not only stronger, healthier bodies, but we can work out to a more, a bigger, a better degree than what we do. So I, I would really like to know what you think of the perfect, not perfect, just the optimal maybe type of breathing for exercise and athletes? Well, I think it depends on who the athlete is, what they're doing, how hard they're working out. Mm-hmm. You know, there, as, as I was told by one breathing therapist, uh, there are as many ways to breathe as there are foods to eat. So it really is depending okay. on, on what you're doing, but these exercises in which, and I just had this question of people have been asking me the so many of these questions that I'm not really qualified to, to answer, but, but about exhaling, they're, they're like, you know, you talk about how important it is to breathe through the nose. Yes. And then, then they talk about, oh, uh, you know, it's also so important to, to exhale through the nose or through the mouth when you're doing breathing practices. Cause there's dozens of pranayama practices where you breathe mm-hmm. through the nose and purse lips through the mouth. Mm-hmm. That's great. Like, and even if okay. you're doing these practices that require mouth breathing, these are conscious practices you're doing for a short amount of time. So the other 24,000 breaths you take in that day (laughs) are going to be done properly. So people should not get nervous. And, you know, people have written, I've gotten dozens of emails too, of people like, should I be talking too much? Should I be laughing? Should I be? It's like, oh my God, what have I done here? I'm talking about, yeah, no talking. Um, So it's about how you're breathing the majority of the time. Mm -hmm. So I surf and swim out in the ocean all the time. I am not breathing through my nose because I can't because it has salt water in it. I'm breathing through my mouth and that's perfectly fine because when I get back on shore, 
I'll start breathing through my nose again. Okay. So, so people should not be stressed out about the, you know, oh, did I screw up that I'm breathing in five seconds or six seconds? Oh my God. <laughs> right. I mean, this is such an American approach to <laughs> so it. So is. <laughs> and, and reading about the runner that um, held his breath is, you know, when you read, when uh, all our listeners, when you, li- when you read the book about the runner that held his breath and I forget which one he was, but yeah, he ran yeah. a marathon and he'd never even run a marathon and he won the gold. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this yeah. is crazy. And I was like, wait, should we be holding our breath while we're working out? What's yeah. And, and, you know, I didn't mean to, to overload the book with too many of these things. I wanted to show the, the breadth yeah. right, of right. all of these different modalities and how it can be used in a proper breathing therapist, which I'm sure what you guys teach is a hundred percent rock solid because you know, about the diaphragm, you right, know yeah. how important it is to move it. It's based on Pilates, you know, there that's a whole science in and of itself, as is yoga. The the point of yoga, I mean, if you really think about it, it's to stretch yourself in a position and breathe. <laughs> Breathe into that position and then stretch into another position. Guess what's happening when you're doing that? You are engaging the diaphragm. You are increasing the flexibility of the respiratory muscles and Mm -hmm. of the rib cage. And you are increasing lung capacity. And we know the number one marker for longevity. It's not genetics. (laughs) It's it's lung Lung capacity. capacity. Yes. these, these are all means to the same ends and how you get to those ends, there can be dozens and dozens of ways, you know, um, but, but the, the point is to, to a diaphragmatic movement where we're just finding now, and this is another thing that's been so ignored throughout medicine is no one's claimed the diaphragm, right? Pulmonologists right. deal with the lungs. Like I don't deal with it. I haven't talked to my father-in-law. He's like, I don't deal with the diaphragm. That's someone else's business. Yeah. It turns out it's not, uh, you know, one researcher in the fifties said it's in this no man's land between anatomy and physiology and nobody has claimed it. Wow. And that's exactly what's happened. But if you don't have proper diaphragmatic movement, you're going to be overworking your heart. You're going to be overworking the systems in your body. You're, I mean, it even affects uh, lymph systems. Every time that diaphragm sinks down, it massages the organs. I mean, on and on and on. And that's one of the reasons why when you take these very slow and deep breaths, you can take your blood pressure before and after about three minutes of this breathing. I've seen my blood pressure go down about 10 to even 15 points because when you're lowering the diaphragm with these long breaths, you are pushing blood into the thoracic cavity. Mm. When you exhale, you are assisting the heart in pushing that blood out. So, so you're lessening the burden on the heart. As we all know, you don't want to be overworking the heart 25,000 times a day. You You want to allow it to do its job with the least movement and the most efficient way. So however you can get there, is is proper. I'm sorry, that's not a very specific no, I, answer, but but there's so many different ways to do it, you know. No, I think that's you know well, enlightening and helpful. I thought it was very enlightening. And I at the back of your book, uh, there are several techniques, and you talk throughout the book about different te- techniques of breathing, and. I'm doing all of them. <laughs> I, I think the one, my favorite one is the one where you take the deep inhale, hold it, and you do the counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, until you're mm-hmm. whispering it. And every single, every time I do that one, particularly, maybe I just haven't learned the other one so well, because it seems it's probably the simplest one to do, but mm-hmm. it isn't easy. I feel really at peace and also energetic at the same exact time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the person who developed that, um, and his story was so amazing to me. This is a vocal coach who was asked by the VA hospitals to come in and help emphysemics. The, these people who had literally been left for dead, they were hooked up to oxygen tanks, pumped up with antibiotics and left for dead. They didn't know what to do with them because they told he was told that, you know, emphysema is this incurable disease. But just by teaching these people diaphragmatic movement to, to breathe properly. It was by far the most beneficial therapy they'd ever seen. These people left for dead, walked out of the hospital. Was and this, then he thought, yeah, sorry. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I interrupted. Was this Stowe, the choir teacher from North Carolina? That's, that's exactly right. And, and so <laughs> shout out to I, North uh, Carolina. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. So, so w- what I've found is 
Uh, I started digging in his archives because no one had heard of this guy. There are x-rays, there's data sheets, there's films, there's case studies. Everything he did was 100% legit. But the moment, and he worked in VA hospitals for 10 years, right? And, and the pulmonologists wow. and, and other directors of these hospitals were like, oh my God, this guy is doing something that we thought was medically impossible. Mm-hmm. The moment he left, his therapy disappeared. Why? And so <sighs> much of, of emphysema is now treated the same way it was 50 years ago. No money in it, right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I think it's, it's I mean, what? too much money. I mean, he's... He's an individual working one-on-one with a patient. Like who has the resources to do that, to hire a hundred thousand respiratory therapists to work with emphysemics. So, um, but I did think it was interesting just if we're talking about athletics that then he was asked to work with the uh, uh, field, the track and field team for the Olympics for the 1968 Olympics, taught them this diaphragmatic movement and they went up to Mexico City and destroyed everyone. I think it's still like the greatest wow. performance ever in an Olympics awesome. by a track team. And they didn't use oxygen before or after the events because they didn't need to. They were the only team not to need to because they were breathing properly. So that's just that's an incredible. example of like the diaphragm, really important muscle there. Right. Uh, should all be considering it. And just to be clear, he was a North Carolina person that did this. <laughs> he, he was born in Pennsylvania, oh, to be shoot. fair. Oh, man. We, were, we, were, we were working that North Carolina <laughs> thing as hard as we could. Go ahead, Lee. You had his something. formative years were in North Carolina. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, the most important way. one. We'll claim him. We'll claim him. Yes. I mean, and that's what you said, or, you know, we're perpetually distracted by emails, by work, by Twitter and social media and news media and our breathing just becomes shallow. So I think in its simplest form, we just have to become a lot more conscious. You talk a lot about conscious breathing and how we can get there. And this is something that I've found myself. I'm, I'm more guilty of this than anyone. I got to the point where I started wearing a pulse oximeter every time I would sit down at my desk because my work life is basically in front of a computer at, at my desk, yeah. right? Reading through stuff, uh, me, me and the vast majority of office workers. And I found that my oxygen could, could go down 10 points um, just because I was not focusing on breathing. They call this email apnea. You get 20 emails all in at once. Twitter pops up. Someone's calling. You completely forget to, to breathe and you enter the state where you're scared because what, what happens when we're threatened? <gasps> yeah, right. that's right. And, and I noticed I was doing this so much so that I was holding my breath for long enough that my O2 was starting to go down. So <sighs> this is something that is so prevalent in, in office communities. And, and they believe that it's one of the reasons could be tied to as, as one of the reasons why, why people are getting headaches, right? right. Why they're fatigued well, all the stressed. time. You're, I sit and read emails and I, the more I look at it, I'm get stressed. And yeah. I think that you think that's it. Maybe it's not really the emails, but it's the fact that you're just sort of having this email apnea. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what it is. And Margaret Chesney here in San Francisco has, she was doing NIH sponsored work on this for, for years and years and finding that so many of the chronic health problems tied to sleep apnea. And there's a laundry list of those can also start showing up if we're constantly holding our breath throughout the day, which is really scary. So, um, it's just something it, it, the first step is being conscious of your breathing. Right. After that, you can work on the techniques, but you have to listen to yourself and really watch how you're breathing throughout breathe the day. Breathe through your nose. Yeah. Yes. So, and specifically in the nose, I love alternate nostril breathing. Explain. I love how the right is the gas pedal. The left is the brake. If you'll give a little description of that, I think that's helpful. Sure. This is pretty wild stuff yeah. as well. So, so our noses are coated with erectile tissue and this is the same erectile tissue you know where you know, uh, i won't i won't fill in the details but we, we all know what what i'm talking about mm-hmm. here so throughout the day one nostril is going to open and the other nostril is going to engorge with blood that tissue is going to close up and our bodies naturally do this And forever, scientists were thinking, why would we develop this ability to do this? This doesn't make 
any sense until you start looking at the functions of that breath in one nostril to the other and how it affects us. So the right nostril, people at home, you can plug your left nostril and breathe through your right. That is going to increase. It's been shown to increase heart, heart rate, increase circulation, add more, they believe, heat to the body. It's more closely tied to the left hemisphere of the brain, which has been associated with logical, math, mathematical thoughts, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the left nostril has the opposite effect. It's much more relaxing. Circulation, um, you know, is going to increase. Uh, the heart rate's going to decrease. You're going to get cooler. So um, uh, uh, when I said in, uh, increase, uh, the right side uh, is circulation is going to slightly decrease because of right, that right. Um, mm-hmm. in, in some in some areas, because when we enter into the sympathetic state, blood shifts around from less essential organs into the heart and muscles and brain so that we can fight or flight. Right. Mm-hmm. The opposite happens in parasympathetic response. So blood starts recirculating to all those organs, which is really what you want. So, right. The balance. Mm-hmm. And if we're cold, we're going to breathe in through our nose. And if mm-hmm. On the right side. And if we're hot, we're going to do the opposite side, right? And and there's a system right? of yoga. Nadi Shadhana uh, has been, they've been practicing this for the whole technology for at least a thousand years. And what does it do? It forces you to hold one nostril closed, breathe through the other one and back and forth to reestablish that balance. I just, and, and that's a fun little hack. I think it's really helpful. There's been some interesting studies conducted on it, but to me, I think it's so fascinating that our bodies are already doing this. They're already naturally shifting. Yeah. And I believe, and some researchers believe that they're doing this to maintain that homeostasis, to maintain that balance. Our yeah. bodies know what to do. Sometimes we just have to help help them get there. So I wouldn't be a good Hilliard Studio Method owner if uh, I didn't ask this question because every one of our clients wants to know this. <laughs> the, the, you, you talk a lot in the book about the exhalation and breathing slower and that breathing slower and exhaling helps you lose weight. I'm bringing this up because specifically people have asked me this. <laughs> I I would never say I would not go so far as to say that at, at all. Um, <laughs> I do know that when you're breathing more efficiently, you're breathing more aerobically. And the way that you get rid of fat is with oxygen. You can't get rid of fat without oxygen. So if you're burning too many areas of your body anaerobically, you're just burning glucose and it's not a very efficient way and you're increasing lactic acid. So uh, what, what I found was interesting, I think that the passage in the book we're talking talking about is that for every 10 pounds of weight you lose about eight and a half of it is exhaled. Ah, that's what I wanted to hear. So, so (laughs) that, and this is something that, that a, a physicist in Australia discovered, I guess he discovered, or he repopularized, and he found something like 90% of the people in the medical community did not know this. We're told, burn off that fat, right? right? And, and, and so people might think, well, if I breathe more, I'm going <laughs> to ah. get rid of more fat. No, no, no. If you breathe more, you're just taking more air in and you're pushing that same air out without using it. And you're cranking up your heart. And chances are you're going to start running more anaerobically. You're not going to burn fat with that. You're going to burn glucose, which means you're going to get hungrier without burning fat. And then you're going to eat more and more fat's going to accumulate. So wow. don't think you can cheat yourself by just <laughs> going to get rid of those extra. Pound. No. <laughs> no, breathing slowly is a much more efficient way of breathing, which allows more oxygen to circulate throughout your body. And guess what oxygen does? Just as I mentioned, it burns fat. fat. Well, well, it gets rid of fat, breaks down fat, right. triglycerides. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so that's that's really the key. Yeah, I love the quote. It says, I just am going to read it because it's so good. You say, I realized then that breathing was like rowing a boat. Taking a zillion short and stilted strokes will get you where you're going, but they pale in comparison to the efficiency and speed of fewer, longer strokes. And that made so much sense as an analogy to me. 
For for sure. And, you know, as as aggressive, competitive Americans, we feel like we just need to push it, push it, push it, do more, 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 more. You know, I live in a city and that's certainly the way it is. But breathing should not be considered like that at all. Uh, you are going to go so much further. You're going to go. Uh, you're going to travel there so much better and you'll be able to do it longer by breathing in line with your metabolic needs, which for the mass, the vast majority of us is by breathing slower than we think we need to. Exactly. Good deal. Um, we want to sort of change gears here. I wanted to go into the, we were in Paris last year. <laughs> Those <laughs> were the glory days. We, right. <laughs> when we could travel when they allowed Americans to go there. Um, anywho, uh, we went, you, you have a part in the book about going down into the catacombs. We didn't go because we wanted to go drink champagne on the mm-hmm. by the river, but we were in line to do it. Remember? Yes. I wish we had gone down, but I, James did it for us. His part, we were like, shoot, we should have gone down. I know. <laughs> so there's the, the Paris quarries um, are 170 miles of these underground tunnels and the catacombs represent maybe 3% of the larger quarries. So I wanted to go to the quarries because I want to go someplace where there weren't any ropes or any signs or anything to keep me from really handling this stuff. So I found through a friend of a friend and what a wonderful network I've, I have here that I was able to call someone who was able to call someone who <laughs> told me, okay, be in Paris. Tuesday night, wow. 7 p.m. Wow. We're going to take you down there. I said, okay, okay. Let's, let's let's roll. It turned <laughs> out to be, um, you know, I had in my mind, I was like, okay, these are going to be these bearded, really gruff, hardcore dudes. And who shows up but these these three women um, who were just like, look like members from the, the Ghostbusters reboot, <laughs> I think I mentioned in the book. These backpacks, complete badasses, pantsuits, and they're Parisian, so they're a little, <laughs> they're awesome. a little snotty, yeah, you know. That's um, amazing. And I'm sitting there in my jeans, <laughs> right? And and I'm I'm wearing boots, but but I'm in my jeans with with nothing. I said, "You guys didn't tell me that <laughs> we're going for like I thought we were going to be down there for 20 minutes." Oh and yeah. And they said no. They said no, no, no. It's going to be about four or five hours. And I said, and I knew like I could have left and I would have never have had that opportunity, but I said, okay, let's, let's do it. So these, these women in their, in their twenties and thirties took me through, oh my God, it was just the most bizarre thing. These tunnels had been dug, you know, some of them are, are thousands of years old. And the way that they got all that limestone to build all those Parisian buildings, the Louvre, I mean, any apartment building, you see that gray stone, mm-hmm. all of Paris was, mm-hmm. they went down 60 feet and dug it out. And so when they ran out of room to bury people, to bury the dead, especially after cholera epidemics, they would just throw the bodies down there. So all of these 6 million skeletons are down there. And um, I wanted to see, I wanted to get a view of these, I call them the patient zeros of the modern face. And and they knew of a spot where a bunch of cholera victims from 1830, I think, 1840, um, were buried. Um, And these were the people who probably first or second generation where their faces really started getting smaller and their teeth started getting crooked from eating all that industrialized food. And that and was so, what, like 300 years ago, right? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. About, uh, you know, industrial revolution started in 1750s or mm-hmm. so, but it really picked up because then they started using steam mills to process flour and wheat and ripping the, the bran and germ from rice and sugar started coming into the scene. So the longer it went on, the worse the the food got, right. you know, the softer it got. Um, and, uh, it was just one of the most surreal experiences I've, I've ever had to just be surrounded by these skulls, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, I, I don't view it as something disrespectful to these people's lives. These, these bodies were dumped down there and, and we were down there. Right revisiting our, our species and no one was disrespect, you know, it was yeah. pretty yeah. heavy, heavy feeling down there. You're like, wow, I, I, I can't imagine, um, you know, what, what this would have been like for the people working down here 200 years ago, who are just lugging bodies Gosh, into just in these stacks. So yeah, I know that's a bit of a tangent, but the, the point was <laughs> to see what is, what had happened yeah. to our faces. Um, and so what, what we've learned, what we've been told, 
for forever is that we can't build bone um, past our 30s. Mm-hmm. And you can see this in any chart. And we, we really start suffering in our 50s and 60s. Women, I think, lose 30 percent of their bone mass, you know, by the right. time they're, they're 60. Um, but there is one bone that, that we can develop and remodel, and it's in the center of our face. And I had learned this. But uh, was still like, what? This is against everything I've read in any textbook. And I thought I would try to see for myself if this were were possible to do to my own airways, my own too small mouth, you know, my <laughs> mm-hmm. own messed up face. And so if you if you take your thumb, if you have a clean hand and you, <laughs> you put it on the upper palate of your mouth, you're going to feel this little ridge. Uh-huh. That ridge it. can split open at any age. So it can split open and widen. And it does that with chewing stress and expansion. So I wore this silly little retainer that helped very softly open up that that palate to the way mm. it was supposed to be if I had eaten proper foods, mm-hmm. you know. So if we can and, eat proper foods, yeah. we don't have to do that. If we go back to I eating just, crunchy vegetables and fruits and nuts and especially in our youth, you know, it's, uh-huh. it's harder chewing, you know, there are definite benefits to, to chewing in, in adulthood, but it is much harder to, to elicit this change. You can still do it. And I proved, you know, you can do it, but, but in infancy and when you're young, yes, hard foods, Develop, huge. Yeah. Well, well, for sure. Because it's, to me, that's, it's, it's so logical, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The more you use something, the more muscles are going to develop, the more bones going to develop, the wider the mouth's going to get. So, and there's been tons of studies showing this but but luckily even in in middle age you can still <laughs> show show real benefit and and that's what I did I took cat scans before and after built a bunch of bone in my face widened my airways made everything more efficient I'm on a subjective scale I'm breathing so much better than than I ever was before never get stuffed noses so it's wonderful to know that you know far past youth of when yeah. we've been told that we can change our bodies we can absolutely change our bodies take control of our health well i think you can speak to that liz i mean you're 66 years old you have a vo2 max you talk about that in the book that's incredible yeah and we can always well it is change the body we can change the body i I don't i think there i think there's i know there's science and people say you can't do much about your bone density but i think you can with resistance training just like you're talking about breathing and Uh, the more you use it the the more it strengthens um but do you think, I want to go back to that for a sec. Do you feel like that was mostly because you've changed the structure of your mouth? Was it mostly that piece of, uh, of that thing you put in your the mouth retainer. or was it the breathing? What, which was the most important factor or was it you changed your diet? What would you do if you're, you know, 40 and plus? Yeah. And, and I can't pinpoint exactly what did what and, and how much a percent I what I tried to show is just how if this was possible right, and, yeah. and if we could do it. And I wish someone would study this stuff more, more thoroughly. Right. I'm not the one to do that, you know, but <laughs> yeah. but uh, I, I wish someone else would. So I think some of it was was that device uh, expanding the mouth. I'm sure that a lot of it was sleep tape at Mm -hmm. night Mm -hmm. because when you're breathing through your nose you're pushing those soft tissues back and you're toning your throat more Mm -hmm. so when you breathe through your mouth if you just take a couple mouth breaths don't worry it's not going to kill you (laughs) (laughs) you can feel those tissues coming coming back up into your throat so just training your your throat this way um i'm sure makes a makes a huge difference chewing can can be really beneficial as well for toning the throat and they found there was this fantastic study study um, where they had people do these oral pharyngeal exercises and they tested them against a control group and looked at their snoring and sleep apnea and found it can have a significant effect Mm. by doing these essentially exercises in your mouth that you never think of doing. So the the mouth is just like any other muscle. It's going to respond to how it's being used. And the more toned up, and, mm-hmm. and worked mm-hmm. out, it's going to be, it's going to work better. So, so all, I think it's all these all things together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, w- you know, it'd be nice to go a day or a podcast without discussing coronavirus and COVID and mm. the world we're living in. I mean, I'm sure you didn't think you would write a book that was going to be published in the middle of this, but actually it's kind of an important 
time very for us to, to think about this. And I kind of want to talk about, hopefully you're handling this well and congratulations for the success, but I know it's, it's very busy about anxiety and how we can handle that with breath. Yeah. And the, the timing here is absolutely bizarre to us. So, so publishing is this very antiquated old <laughs> industry in which you hand in your book and that book comes out a year later. So we had this thing in catalogs six months ago and the catalogs are the things that are given to bookstores and given around. Okay. So, so for anyone who thinks like we, you know, manipulated the release date <laughs> to come out, I mean, it's, it's garbage. I worked on this book for years right? and it's been on the books for six Six months. Wow. We actually were thinking about so many people have been delaying the publications of their of their books. And they said, do you want to delay here? And I said, no, no. I think <laughs> even if it flops right at the beginning, you know, I think this stuff is so important, especially now, mm-hmm. especially with nasal breathing. Know that nasal breathing can be it looks very likely can be a great defense yes. against bacteria, pathogens. And guess mm-hmm. what? viruses as well. Mm -hmm. Breathing through the nose increases nitric oxide. Guess what nitric oxide does? It can interact directly with viruses to kill them. And we know this by looking at Petri dishes full of mammalian cells and introducing nitric oxide, having those cells live so much longer. So, I mean, I could go on and on about that, but it's, it's been totally surreal that for years, I, I've been telling people I'm writing a book about breathing. They're just like, Oh, yawning (laughs) thing. And next, and now Everyone's talking about breathing. Well, I have to say it's <laughs> and, the most um, important book I have read about health to me. I, I would have to I say, agree. and it, it's, it's groundbreaking and it's ancient and it's simply right. breathing. And you, for you to say that, you know, that can help fight the viruses at the same time that deep breathing through the nose helps reduce anxiety and reduce mm-hmm. blood pressure and all the things that are coming with mm-hmm. this anxiety over this pandemic. Well, it's a little bit, excuse me, counterintuitive. I think when you look at asthma and as you say in the book, anxiety, you start to breathe more, which begets probably more of the anxiety. And, and we know that respiratory health makes a huge difference in your chances of fighting off this virus. Mm-hmm. That's, that is very well known. Um, you look at these people with very poor respiratory health. So, and, and they're looking at these breathing techniques like proning, like uh, putting people on their backs or on their sides mm-hmm. or not, not backs uh, on their sides or stomachs once they get this thing, because so much of that expansion of the lungs happens in the back, right. not, not in the chest. Right. So it's all of these ancient things that we have known that cultures around the world have known for thousands of years really seem to be coming back. They've known that respiratory health was an essential to, to health and happiness and longevity, which is why they developed so many breathing techniques, which is what yoga came from. Right. <laughs> you know, y- yoga was never an active exercise until a hundred years ago. And I do yoga all the time, so I'm not ripping on yoga at all. Sure. Vinyasa flow and all that. I love it. I do it all the time. I've seen the benefits. But the first yoga up until a hundred years ago was holding one pose and breathing into that space. And, and I think that that's such a powerful message mm-hmm. is to acknowledge that it's not just about brain health or kidney health or stomach health. There is an anchor to all of this and it's, and it's breathing is the, is that pillar. All right. Well, I, I, I want you to sort of round us up. I mean, we've, we, we could go on and on because we have so many <laughs> stories, especially about the you know Tibetan monks that, you know, just walk through sub-zero degrees and just feel just fine. And, and I know everyone is either reading this book or will read your book since you're doing so well. But if you were going to tell us one thing to do. I think you already have, but maybe two or three things to, to walk away with about why we need to breathe and breathe correctly. What would those be? Well, if you want to live a longer life, if you want to feel what, what real health is, yeah. I, I think that there's, there's so many reasons to breathe correctly. And that's what I tried to lay out in the book. I think Andrew Weil, the, the famed yeah. doctor said it best where he said, if there were one piece of advice I could give anyone, it was learn how to breathe properly. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I would, I would echo that. Uh, the, the benefits are proven. The science is there. If you doubt it, I put up the entire bibliography 
of the book on my website, all 500 and what, 20 references. (laughs) You can can check, there's x-rays, there's data sheets. So, um, you know, the, the idea that it's so obvious and so simple shouldn't turn you off to the proof that it's so powerful and it's available to anyone at any time. And that that's also what I like about it. You're not asking someone to run six miles a day. You're asking them to focus on their most basic biological function, which everyone can do. That's so powerful. Thank you so much for everybody who's considering getting this book. You should buy it. Maybe at your local store, wherever you're if you can find, find it. Good luck. I know. The audiobook is great too. I was gonna say Audible, download it you know, you are not a doctor, you're an incredible journalist. So to read this as a lay person, I thought it was incredibly entertaining, page turning. The stories you told were incredible. You have a great sense of humor. If we come to California one day, (laughs) I'd like to meet you in person. (laughs) Right. But yes, you've done your work and and we appreciate it. We're going to carry this on throughout our lives and hope all of our clients and friends and family really take a moment to breathe better. Pay attention to your breath and shut your mouth. Breathe through your nose, right? <laughs> yeah. Stand up straight and shut, and your, shut mouth. your mouth. You know, it's still, still good. Still good advice after all these years. Oh, gosh. Thank <laughs> you is. so much, James. What a pleasure. And uh, I know you're a busy man, so good luck with the rest of your book tour as it is from your home in San Francisco. And we hope to talk with you soon again. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It was thank a lot you. Of fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hilliard Studio Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, take a moment to subscribe to the Hilliard Studio Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and a review so that others can find us. We're looking forward to reopening Hilliard Studio Method soon, but until we know when we can do that, we're going to keep providing you with great HSM content, including at-home workouts, healthy tips for you and your family, as well as candid conversations with Lee and Liz. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hilliard Studio Method for all the latest HSM news. Book classes, stream workouts, buy gear, and much more at our website, HilliardStudioMethod.com. That's it for now. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>